We are biologically inclined to propagate our species and as such are also biologically inclined to love and desire to protect our children. However, we also have an undercurrent of resentment towards them because children are a reminder of our own mortality. They literally exist for the purposes of replacing us. This manifests in a number of ways. We tend to hate pop music that was released at least five years after we left high school because it has reminded us that the world is moving on past us. And one day, after we die, it will become something that we don't recognize anymore. And it hurts our sense of self-importance. Another way that this is manifest, at least cinematically, is in Village of the Dam, the 1960 film based on the novel by John Wyndham that involves a group of parasitic alien children who invade a quiet English country town and begin using their psychic abilities to dominate everyone and everything. For this episode, we're going to be talking about this film, piecing it apart, looking at its sources, looking at what influenced it and what it influenced in turn, and just uh, getting to the bottom of it. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Returning once again is my sister Cheryl. This is a particularly special film for her. Oh, absolutely. Village of the Damned is one that I caught the, what is it, the 1960s version of it? Yeah, it came out in 1960. I I caught the 1960s version of it when I was too young to understand that it wasn't just a super long Twilight Zone episode. And then, of course, I saw the 90s one and became obsessed with it because that one was just constantly on the sci-fi channel and it was trash garbage and I loved it. We will be discussing the remake in the segment of the program about this film's legacy. Before we do anything else, it is time for the plot synopsis. Yes, Village of the Damned is set in a small British village of Midwich, which is beset by a mysterious phenomenon where everyone suddenly falls unconscious, including those who enter the community after it happens. The military erects a cordon around the town and, at first, sends in a man wearing a gas mask. Uh, He informs his superior of feeling a cold sensation just before he passed out and was dragged out of the community with a rope. The pilot of reconnaissance plane dies when he dips below 5,000 feet and immediately falls asleep at the stick. After four hours, the villagers all awaken, uh, apparently unaffected. However, two months later, it becomes clear that every person in the village who has a functioning universe, uh, uterus rather, has become pregnant during the event. There are questions of infidelity and promiscuity before the phenomenon is credited, most dramatically with a 17-year-old virgin who attempts suicide after being shamed by her family. Seven-month fetuses are discovered after five months, and all of the babies are born on the exact same day. Uh, the babies are distinguished by their ghoulish eyes, odd scalp construction, narrow fingernails, and platinum blonde hair. The children develop and grow very rapidly. They also have psychic abilities, which is first demonstrated when uh, one of the women accidentally burns the child because she didn't test the bottle beforehand and is somehow compelled into burning her own hand. Is a gesture of revenge. I mean, eye for an eye, burn for a burn. The kid looked pissed, and honestly, who can blame him? He was just given a bottle that was scalding hot. Yeah, the children are capable of communicating silently with each other over long distances, and as it's demonstrated with the Chinese puzzle box, once one of the children learns something, all of the others then know it as well. It soon becomes clear that the children are incapable of empathy, conscience, or love. They congregate together, uh, dress impeccably, but also very much alike. Uh, They speak maturely, and they alienate the villagers with their coldness, which is demonstrated at the scene where they're picking up uh, groceries. 
To be fair, though, if if every small child in the world was dubbed by an adult woman, they would also sound incredibly professional. Now, the central protagonist of this film is Professor Gordon Zellaby, whose wife, uh, Anthea, gave birth to the mutant David. He attends a meeting by British intelligence and is informed that similar phenomena has occurred in other rural communities throughout the world. It happened in an Inuit one where they immediately killed their children because they recognized that they were others. It happened in an Australian village. However, all of those kids died after a few hours. It didn't take. However, there is a functioning one in Russia where they have sequestered the children in the school and are teaching them things. Zellaby is excited by this because he thinks that the high aptitude of the children, their ability to learn, will rocket human progress forward hundreds of years. He does plants. I mean, if you have a serious background in how plants work, of course, then you're going to be able to have all these fantastic theories about science and human evolution. Zellaby's profession is not overtly stated. He likes to crossbreed plants, which means that he might be a geneticist, but it's also possible that he's a botanist. But either way, he's the smartest person in town, so he gets to go to the British intelligence meetings. Uh, A geneticist who's obsessed with children with super white blonde hair? Yes, that will be one of the thematic undercurrents we will be discussing in this. As this film takes place, oh, very much when World War II is in living memory. I mean, it's still in living memory now, but even more so then. Now, the children's telepathic abilities become undeniable when they start publicly forcing people to do things against their will. The townspeople begin connecting them to a number of mysterious deaths that have plagued Midwich since the phenomenon. This is confirmed when the children force a man to crash his car into a wall and kill himself after he accidentally stops short and almost runs over one of the kids. The brother of the motorist is very suspicious and makes this known at a meeting and attempts to gun down the children later, and they force him to turn his rifle upon himself. It's a very sweaty scene. Everybody in the scene is covered in sweat for no reason. I mean, tension? Does sweat equal tension in the 1960s? It sort of does now, but yeah, they, they, they do really pile it on. British intelligence believes that the children are a threat, and they want to imprison them in some kind of concentration camp type of environment. Zellaby is against this. He still thinks that the children's potential is more critical than their danger, and also that would be inhumane, not to mention it might provoke them, which doesn't come up. But they come up with a compromise where all the children are sequestered in a separate building, sort of more like a boarding house than a prison camp, and Zellaby begins instructing them himself. However, he soon learns that the Russian children began trying to exert control over everyone and the military was sent in it didn't work out and russia just ended up just nuking them so that's on the table yeah Woo-hoo! solutions yeah the children become increasingly nervous about this because they now know they're the only ones left and they get increasingly more nervous whenever they hear airplanes overhead because they're still trying to figure out how to manipulate pilots from you know a distance of that sort yeah they say specifically we haven't done it yet Big emphasis on the yet there. Zellaby finds the children's resistance to ethical reasoning to be something of a brick wall, which ends up planting a seed that he will be using later on in the film. This is foreshadowing. Dun, dun, dun. It's my foreshadowing noise. The children then approach Zellaby with an ultimatum, claiming that they are going to disperse and start colonies in other parts of the world where they're less conspicuous. 
At this point, Zelebi has finally seen the writing on the wall and knows that the children are a threat to the human race. I see what you did there. That's pretty good. So he sends his wife and loved ones away and attends the meeting to the children under the pretense of facilitating a way to get them out of the village without attracting attention. However, he has taken a time bomb with him. The children are immediately suspicious of him because he appears nervous. However, he has manifested the brick wall in his mind, and that is apparently enough to resist the scans of the children until the bomb finally goes off. However, there is one very pregnant pause in this film. There are a number of pregnant pauses. We'll be talking about that when I get into the cinematography, where David seems to figure it out just a second before the bomb goes off, and he has this look of astonishment on his face, which is the first time that any of the children have manifested an emotion. Very good directing there. But yeah, everyone, including Zelebi, is killed in the explosion, and that is the end of the film. Hooray! Yes, the human race is saved once again to steer the world in its sure, confident, intelligently informed direction, he said knowingly. Okay, well, before we go into any other aspects, I want to talk a bit about the source novel for this, because, well, this is the first time I have seen this film the whole way through. I did read the book a couple of years ago. I didn't even know until you told me that there was a book is based on a 1957 novel by John Wyndham entitled The Midwich Cuckoos. It was changed to Village of the Damned because presumably that is a more cinematic title. Wyndham is not a, like, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov level of science fiction writer, but he is well regarded. He also wrote Day of the Triffids and The Chrysalids. The latter novel is an influence on The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Day of the Triffids was also intelligent, well thought out, sharp, punchy little science fiction novel, which is not evident in the incredibly schlocky B-movie that Day of the Triffids was adapted into at roughly the same time as this film. You can't see because, you know, just voice, but I look incredibly excited right now, and we are watching this movie. Okay, Day of the Triffids is kind of a zombie movie with the thematic undercurrent of humanity being the real monster, except the monster is a group of walking, genetically modified carnivorous trees. Yeah, and at first they're a nuisance, but then this meteor shower causes everyone who looks at it to be blinded, which throws humanity into disarray and allows the Triffids to start taking over. You're telling me that it's a movie about zombie space ants? Yes, it is. Yes! But yeah, getting back to the Midwitch Cuckoos, which... That is a silly title, but it is based in something because cuckoos, like the children in Village of the Damned, are brood parasites. They lay their eggs in the nests of other birds, and the birds raise the cuckoo hatchlings as their own. The cuckoos either destroy the other eggs before they lay their own, or if the eggs are allowed to hatch alongside the cuckoo eggs, the, the cuckoo infants generally kill the other real birds because they're just competing for attention and stuff. Cuckoos are bastards. Pretty much, yeah. They basically just scream for food until their foster parents die of exhaustion. You know, like most kids. Like platinum blonde psychic children. Uh, Yeah, I first learned about this from Sandman, the same way that you did. Thank you, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, at first I thought the cuckoo was a bird with like a really cutesy calling sign, but no, they're, they're evil. Yeah, there are a couple of differences in the source novel, although they generally follow the same plot points beat for beat. 
it does have a first-person narrative, but it's from an outsider who is documenting the events in Midwich, so there's a bit of a journalistic distance in the writing. This makes Zellaby less of a core protagonist, and that makes the uh, final destruction of the children more of a shocking twist because the narrator doesn't learn about it until right after it happens. Whereas in the film, it's played as it's happening in the moment in order to like build tension, which in a film is probably a more intelligent choice. Overall, the storytelling has more focus on xenogenesis and brood parasites, and when the children make their uh, ultimatum, it is to the British government itself demanding a refuge. Also, they're a little more straightforward about their intentions. They're flat out saying, like, yes, we are going to replace you, we are the Cro-Magnons, you are the Neanderthals. Nothing personal, though. It makes you kind of wonder, though, like, why? Are they just, like, setting the stage for the actual aliens to come down and then the aliens are going to, like, wipe them out? Or are they just there to take over the planet because the aliens are assholes? My assumption is that the aliens reproduce that way. Like, they're xenomorphs. I mean, okay, I guess. I'll allow it. Yeah, they're more erudite xenomorphs. Fine. Wyndham uh, attempted to write a sequel entitled Midwich, Maine, but he abandoned it after only a few chapters. It was an immediately successful novel, got translated uh, over to uh, American audiences, not quite translated, but there are a couple of minor alterations, not just, you know, spelling color without a U, but also a little Britishism for change to Americanisms. And it got a couple of BBC radio adaptations, both before and after this film. Oh, next thing we should talk about is the production. The film was initially set in the United States, but there were a number of delays, the most interesting coming from protests from religious groups who were upset by the story's sinister take on virginal birth. Another monkey wrench was the casting. The screenplay was written with uh, Ronald Coleman in mind. The producers wanted Glenn Ford to star. Ford was one of MGM's biggest stars, and they thought it would help the film's box office. Coleman was sick throughout, and he died before the script was completed. The role eventually went to George Sanders, who, interestingly enough, had married Coleman's widow in the interim. Finally, when the film got greenlit and an official date was set, they ended up moving production over to England, and the screenplay had to be rewritten very quickly over a weekend by uh, director Wolf Rilla because the screenwriters had attempted to make it English, but they, were, they didn't do a particularly great job. And Rilla thought that the script was really phony and artificial, and he had to punch it up and make more of the local dialect less ridiculously wrong. Hey, governor! Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of chimney sweeps in this Midwich screenplay, maybe. That must have been Rilla hard. Oh, my. Yeah, Rilla approached the film with a documentary feel. That's how he phrased it. He wanted it to have a sort of quotidian naturalism so that the supernatural undercurrents were more chilling and atmospheric and less jarring, which I think really works. There are a lot of subtle touches throughout this film, like when the townspeople of Midwich all pass out. There isn't just a wide shot of people asleep, like in a cartoonish way. He just goes from home to home and, you know, looks at people leaving the faucet on or burning their dress with the ironing board or just falling asleep on a sofa bed. And there's these slow little pans across it. It was very patiently done, especially considering that this film is only 77 minutes long. And it's a tight 77. There's no fat on it. Yeah, it's really well paced. The children themselves were given special wigs to make their heads appear slightly larger than most children that age would have. Is that why their hair looks so perfect the whole time? I had, like, serious bang envy. 
And like, I can't grow, I can't have bangs because of the scar I have on my forehead. So like the whole time, I'm just like, these kids and their ba- I need to get a wig is what the solution is. The most noteworthy characteristic of the children is probably the glowing eye effect. Uh, this was done by crafting animated overlays over the child actor's pupils in freeze frame. It is very obviously freeze frame. Like the, the end of like an 80s movie. Freeze frame! There's only one scene where there isn't a freeze frame, and that is when David dispersed an angry mob by killing one of them. An army commander had come in, and he was responsible for reporting back to British intelligence as to what he should do. And David ends up silencing him by putting him in paralysis, and yeah, he tells him to leave us alone. And that's the one moment where they have the glowing eye effect without freeze frame, and it's clearly a pain in the ass to animate because it's moving around uh, pupils, and they're doing the best they can with the time they have. I mean, that's fair. Was that really so? I thought it was, what's her name? Anthea's brother. That was someone else? Anthea's brother is the military guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, because this movie just, it sucks to be somebody's brother in this movie. The the motorist that gets murdered and the military guy that gets put into a coma. Both uh, are brothers. So it's, uh, you would not survive long in a village of damned children. Are the children damned or are the villagers damned? I believe everyone in the village is damned. That seems to be the implication of the title. So yeah, you wouldn't survive long in a damned village. I think the real implication of the title is that this title looks cool on a poster. Much cooler than the Midwitch Cuckoos. It's actually a pretty cool poster. If you look at the 1960s one, because his face is like all orange and looks like somebody's super proud of peeling an orange in one peel. One thing I noticed is that the clothing in the children, it's very mod, which was a fad in England at roughly that time period. And maybe they were just wagging their fingers at these weird little kids on their scooters listening to that uptown soul type thing and, and, and getting into fights and causing a ruckus. And you know, we, we fought back the Jerry's for our kids to turn into this. What the hell? Yes. <laughs> I'm saying they look kind of mod. Maybe it's just the wigs. I don't know. Uh, Anyways, the glowing eye effect was removed by British censors in their release of the film because they believed it was too scary for English audiences. So the kids are just staring for no reason. The kids are just staring for no reason. I'm sure there's still like the eerie little pseudo-theremin wine as they're forcing people to kill themselves, but there's no glowing eye. Yes. The censors also removed a clip of David smiling after he forced the villager to immolate himself. Yeah, fair. That one's pretty disturbing. A, a good bit of this film is just understatement, both in the performances and the direction. There's just lots of little things like that, such as David smiling. The, the one that struck out to me is when the, the army dude tells the airplane flying over the village to lower down a little bit to see what the threshold is, and the pilot ends up dying in a crash because he falls asleep at the stick, and you get this short little shot of the army dude realizing that he had just told that man to die, and he's not cool with that. The next bit is him immediately rushing over to the radio and telling every plane to fly off because now he feels guilty. Which, it also, like, timing-wise sucks because within, like, five minutes, the whole, like, everybody anywhere near this village is passing out thing goes away. So that pilot died for no reason. The location of this was Lechmore Heath, which is a tiny village in England, which is about 12 miles north of London, which doesn't sound very far, but England's a small place. Yes. 
for the film's reception, like I said, the source novel was very popular in England, and the film was highly anticipated, and it was a big hit in uh, in the UK. It was a bit more of a sleeper hit in North America. It got a quiet reception at first, but apparently word of mouth was good, and it ended up being more successful later on. It was produced under a budget of uh, $320,000. It earned $2,175,000. Mm. Most of the reviews were positive. It was praised largely for its restrained uh, atmosphere and sort of uh, a small-town eeriness. Another thing I'll be talking about a little bit when we get to the thematic aspects of the movie. It also did well enough to get a sequel, Children of the Dan, which was released in 1964. This compartmentalizes its cast a bit. It focuses on six children from various countries over the world who have the midwitch cuckoo uh, quality to them. Interestingly enough... Themes of Children of the Damned are the exact opposite of Village of the Damned. The children are portrayed as sympathetic. They are gifted individuals who are victimized by the prejudices of a xenophobic world. And we would all be better able to work together and build a better world if we could just lower our barriers and trust better and be more willing to communicate. So one of the cuckoos got out and then made a movie that was like a big VR stunt. No, no, no. Let us... Let us crossbreed and take over the world. I mean, don't be racist, accept us. Oof. This one was less well-regarded. The New York Times review saw it as dull and pretentious. It ultimately made half as much as its predecessor at the box office, although it is better regarded by modern critics. It did inspire a song by Iron Maiden, which is on their 1982 album Number of the Beast, entitled Children of the Damned, Although Bruce Dickinson has said that the song was also based on Children of the Sea. Now, this isn't one of Iron Maiden's hits. It's kind of a deep cut, but you'll remember it just because the chorus is Dickinson just using his little pseudo-operatic diva huffing to go, Children of the Damned! And then the guitar goes, dun, 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 dun. And that is my approximation of Bruce Dickinson's three and a half octave range. I'm sure it's terrible. So, when you edit this episode, anytime there's a pause, can you just put that in, please? <laughs> just cut it throughout the whole episode. Everyone will be sick of it except you. Absolutely. We're uh, doing this for me, right? I just cut the pauses out, but sure, let's do that. Audience of one! The movie also got a remake, also entitled Village of the Damned. It was directed by John Carpenter and came out in 1992. And it's delightful garbage. You've said that already. Now, a remake of Village of the Damned had been in development since 1978 because the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake that came out that year was received very well. That makes sense. I mean, it's very easy to connect the two movies. They do have comparable themes, once again, something that we'll be bringing up in the thematic parts. It mostly goes through the same paces as the plot, although it's moved to an American setting. It is far more violent. David gets to survive because he's a bit more of a sweetie pie. Elements of Children of the Damned seeping into the remake. And yeah, the kids overall are a bit more sympathetic in the original. They're still murderous, but you can see where they're coming from. Not all of them were murder hobos. The Village of the Damned remake got a mixed reception and bad box office. A lot of the critics were not thrilled with the performances from the stars, including Kirstie Alley, Christopher Reeve, and Mark Hamill as a preacher got really beat up by the reviewers. Kirstie Alley just does not have good luck with baby movies, especially babies dubbed by adult women. I had to go there. I have, oh, come on, look who's talking. I teed myself up for that. <laughs> 
Carpenter said that he wasn't passionate about the film and he directed it largely out of a contractual obligation. I'm forced to agree with him there. Even John Carpenter superfans seem to see this one as a, one of his uh, lesser efforts. I briefly considered doing this episode as another one of those double feature things where you compare two versions of the same story, but you and I had just done one last week for Waxwork, and I don't think the Village of the Damned remake is interesting enough to do a compare and contrast uh, bit for it. Now, there are a whole bunch of John Carpenter movies that are candidates for this show, and I'm definitely going to do at least one of them, and Village of the Damned is pretty low on that list. So Village of the Damned, the John Carpenter one, has one of my favorite deaths all time in horror. It's the one where the angry alcoholic janitor climbs up onto the roof and he's got some sort of yard tool. And you think, oh, he's going to, you know, impale himself with it. But then they flip it around so that it's the handle and he just puts it to his chest and just walks off the roof and stabs himself that way. And it's probably my favorite thing ever. All right, well, that's everything I want to say about it, so let's move on to this film's legacy elsewhere. Uh, this was also the basis for a Simpson ep episode, uh, Wild Bards Can't Be Broken, which aired in 1999, which is after the show's golden period, but I still have fond reminiscences about this episode. It involves the Springfield children being unsatisfied with a curfew that they believe is far too early for them, so to get revenge, they are inspired by a village of the dam type of film called the bloodening to go on a pirate radio transmission and then air the dirty laundry of their parents in affected british accents oh i do i have tiny like little like snippets of memory of this episode yeah, there's a whole bunch of Village of the Dan references throughout. I think it's overall a pretty good episode, although I'm I, I, not crazy about the musical ending. I, I thought that was kind of a left-field cop-out. We're going to have to rewatch like immediately after we're done recording. I hope you realize. And comic nerd that I am, I cannot finish this episode without mentioning the X-Men. There are some supporting characters introduced during Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley's run on New X-Men called the Stepford Cuckoos, a portmanteau of the Stepford Wives and the Midwich Cuckoos. They are a group of teen girls with platinum blonde hair, a hive mind, and telepathic abilities. They are mentored by Emma Frost. It goes really well for her. Spoiler warning. They are fan favorite characters. I, I love a whole bunch of the supporting characters and Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley's X-Men run. It got a lot of complaints, especially while it was running, but I thought it was a breath of fresh air and the X-continuity overall. But, you know, Beak, Angel, Cassandra Nova, all on board with all of those things. And the, yeah, the, the Stafford Cuckoos got to hang around after Morrison's run ended, which is weird because Marvel kind of dialed back all the other stuff when they brought Joss Whedon on. But going on a bit of a side tangent there, we can talk about X-Men sometime else. All right, and finally, the themes, which we typically end these episodes with. Every time I do a science fiction film that, that was made in the middle of the 20th century, I talk about how it's a metaphor for Cold War paranoia. And I think that's true, whether the filmmakers are conscious of it or not. I do understand that might be my distance-giving perspective to it, thinking of something Chuck Klosterman once wrote, that every piece of literature that was published in the middle of the 19th century in America is usually seen as a Civil War metaphor, even when it's not. But... 
you can definitely see undercurrents of Red Scare, nuclear paranoia, Cold War uh, idioms throughout Village of the Damned, and also the source novel that it's based on. British intelligence is very frightened of these alien children. There is a literal nuclear strike in the middle of the uh, of the story's plot. The idea that you can't trust outsiders, you can't trust people who bring dangerous ideas into your community. They might corrupt it from within. Lots of sentiments of that, especially in Hollywood after the McCarthyism, which had you know, it was a very recent memory and is still a very fresh wound during that period. You've heard it here first. Don't trust people with gorgeous bangs and fabulous clothing. Especially if they look like those mod punkers. <laughs> Fuck you, Oscar Wilde. That dovetails right into xenophobia, which is, you know, big aspect of this film. I, I, I think it's really fascinating that Children of the Dam comes out later after four years of civil rights movement and essentially has the opposite thesis statement. Yes. And as I said in my intro, there's an undercurrent of resentment towards younger generations in there. This has been going on in human society from the beginning. There's references in this and Plato's studies of Socrates, where Socrates is talking about how terrible it is that children these days are writing things down instead of memorizing oral arguments and then repeating them verbatim. It is softening their minds. It is making them weak and stupid. And yeah, we're always going to feel that way. We are always going to be angry that these children are listening to this music we, we, we don't understand or wearing these clothes that we don't get and look silly to us or having these weird political ideas that were not even appropriate to talk about when we were growing up. Oh boy, where did we go wrong? That's right. Stop wearing hot pants. Start wearing trip pants. I want my pockets to go down to my ankles. Damn it. And it brings me to another aspect of it. Uh, one of the more traditional bits of, well, humor and scare quotes is the idea that a father is overly protective of his teenage daughter and is threatening to murder uh, any boys who are trying to take her out. And I, I've read psychological studies of this phenomenon, which is a true thing. Um, According to some sources, there is a degree of fear underneath it because this teenage boy isn't just dating your teenage daughter. He is reminding you that you are getting older and that he is not. He is young and virile and powerful and you are slower than you were last year. You're going to be slower than the next year. The world is passing you by. You will grow old and die and these people will replace you. I love doing these podcasts with you together. They just, they make me feel so young and of hope. <laughs> COVID's done things to me. I'm not <laughs> saying that it's implanted these things in my mind. It's just nurturing them and letting them grow. I think it also gets to something that's in this film's storytelling is that it implies that there is a difference between love and a wish to propagate one's own species, because it is very clearly stated that the children in Village of the Damned are not capable of love. However, they are interested in the continuance of their species, and this movie kind of has this wishful thinking where it decides that these things are different, that love is sacred and independent of our animal instincts, not an aspect of it, not something that we generate around ourselves to make us think that we're different than the animals running in the field. No, we are, we, we are spiritual. We transcend the nature around us. Well, we are different. The cow didn't have babies. The dog didn't have psychic puppies. I don't want my psychic puppies movie, damn it. That's the next Airbuds movie. You've heard it here. Psychic Airbuds. 
Now that I think about it, yeah, you know what? It's very possible that there were psychic demon parasitic dog babies, and the Midwich people just didn't notice. I mean, where else are you going to go with the Airbuds franchise? There's only one place to go. Unless it's space or the hood, you have to have psychic puppies taking over the world. All right, well, that blows through most of my notes. Uh, is there anything in your notes that you haven't crossed out yet? Yes. Also, don't tell them how I do my terrible notes as we go along. It's embarrassing. So, the way that the um, botanist, who's the king of science, gets one over on the cuckoo babies is he imagines the brick wall in his mind. Now, I've given this a stupid amount of thought ever since I was a young girl. I know how I would handle trying to block a psychic out of my brain. I would pick in the most impenetrable thing that I can think of that just once it's in your brain, it's there all day, 100% stuck, on loop, no other thought can move past it. It's the song Mbop by Hansen, just on repeat over and over again, making us both miserable until the bomb in my suitcase blows up. What would you do? You know what, I probably would have come up with a different song, but after you suggested Mbop, that, that's going to be my go-to too. It's already stuck in my head on repeat. It's slowly driving me mad. Yeah, that's because I don't know any other aspect of the song other than its monster hook. I agree. It is a very... I actually really enjoy the song, but yeah, no, it's just... It's catchy. Yeah, that, 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 that thing is just your classic earworm. It just works your way in there. And it's not the whole song that repeats in your head. It's that 20-second loop. That's yep. exactly what earworms do. All right, uh, is there anything else? Yes, there's two more things. One of them, it took me the whole episode to figure out how to do it, but I think I've done it. So, the wife, Anthea, much like Beef <laughs> from Band of the Paradise, has fabulously curly hair that just looks perfect throughout the movie. She didn't do anything wrong, and she wound up losing her husband and her son, and she got like a half-catatonic brother by the end of the movie. Yeah, at the very moment where she's being sped away from the incoming explosion, she figures out what he's doing and then demands that the car be turned around. Well, she was driving. Yeah. Which so is a weird thing for her to do is demand it while she's doing it. It's like she's telling her, Dad, I gotta do this. Well, she's English. She's very polite. Okay, fair. But she did nothing wrong, much like our dear beloved friend, Captain Beef. Hashtag Beef did, did nothing wrong. wrong. Slowly breaking your spirit, episode by episode. Yeah, you're just going to put this in every one from now on, huh? It is a life goal of mine, absolutely. And the last thing I wanted to bring up was, what kind of shitty alien species has weak, peely, frail fingernails? Well, I mean, the kids are so capable of everything else. By the time they're three years old, they understand atomic science that you can't be good at everything. So apparently you have a weak fingernail game. The way to kill psychic children is to give them all hangnails that lead to infections and they die. It's just like that movie with the Martians. You just sneeze on them. That makes me think of Day of the Triffids, which is one of the favorite flocky horror movies of my friend Mackenzie. She guested on the Clue episode because of everyone I know. This is going to be lots of schlocky B-movies, whether I want the show to become about that or not. But at the end of the novel, Day of the Triffids, the Triffids take over. The humans can't sort their shit out. That's the point. Uh, the Triffids go from a nuisance to 
being the new dominant species on the earth, the Visigoths who push our Roman Empire of a species into their grave. However, in the movie, the Triffids lose because you want a feel-good ending, and what kills them is seawater. The thing that the whole world is, like, covered in. Yes, yeah, 70% of the earth is poison to these Triffids. I want you to know that, like, the way I'm picturing them in my head, by the way, is genuinely just fluffy balls of hair, because all I can think of is Star Trek monster. Whatever your mental image of the movie Triffids are, it's worse. <laughs> Just little balls of hair. <laughs> okay, if that is that, uh, I believe that is one more episode that we have completed. Unless there's anything you can think of before I finish this sentence, I will bid you all good night and we will see you next time.